This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 194. And the quote of the day is from Lou Rawls, who said, Music is the greatest communication in the world. Even if people don't understand the language that you're singing in, they still know good music when they hear it. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And if this is your first time listening, thanks for checking it out. I appreciate it. Shoot me an email. Let me know that this is your first time checking it out. And uh, welcome to the to the Drummer's Resource community. You can check out over 190 interviews all free at drummersresource.com while you're there. Sign up for the mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my ebook, Stick Control Variations, which is 11 creative exercises to help you with your speed, your independence, and your chops. Also, uh, I do a webinar where I teach you how to get bigger and better gigs. So I'll teach you who gets hired and why, how to be a top call musician and how to get the gigs. Most importantly, how to keep those gigs. And you can check that out free. Go to drummersresource.com forward slash gigs, G-I-G-S to sign up for that free webinar. Also, one last piece of uh, of news or or one more piece of let me ask you to do something for me. Uh, I've done over 190 of these interviews for free. Haven't asked for anything in return. Now I am. Uh, if you could go to drummersresource.com forward slash vote, V-O-T-E, and vote for the 2016 Drummy Awards. I've been nominated. Drummers Resource has been nominated for the best general interest website, and I would appreciate a vote. Last year, Drummers Resource was runner-up. This year, I would love to be the winner in the 2016 Drummy. So head over to drummersresource.com forward slash vote. If you've ever gotten any piece of value out of this podcast, here's your chance to pay me back if you'd like. So no money, just a vote, drummersresource.com forward slash vote. Now let's get into the interview today. This is with the amazing Carl Allen, uh, the great jazz player. And he, the, the, the interview was great. He's, he's a funny dude, a great character, uh, an amazing player, had some great insight, not only about practice, but a lot about life and, and mentorship and, and some life lessons that he's learned along the road in playing and that he's learned from some other people. So a really insightful interview, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed doing the interview with Carl. So let's get into it with the one and only Carl Allen. Carl, what's happening, man? Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Oh, man, thank you so much for having me, man. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. Well, thank you. That, that means the world to me. Uh, how you making out with the heat? You oh, staying cool over there? It's rough, man. It's rough. It is. Yeah. It is. For some reason, I don't know why, but there's always like a weather conversation in the beginning of the podcast. Oh, really? I don't know why. Like, <laughs> I think it's me. I'm always like, let's talk about the weather. It's like the most boring thing to talk about. Well, it's so, something everybody can relate to, right? I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hot here, so yeah, uh, yeah. So for for the audience members who who don't know who you are or are not familiar with with really who you are and what you do, just I like to build a little bit of context of some backstory, maybe a little bit about where you're from and sort of how you got the drumming bug and how you got into playing. Well, let me first say, if there are people who are not familiar with me, we should find some fourth world country to send them to, <laughs> not even a third world, fourth world, if there's such a thing. But no, I'm I'm um, 
You know, I'm originally from, as I like to, to say, from the jazz capital of the world, which is Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There you go. Uh, I'm the youngest of five kids, raised just by my mother, grew up in the church, so I grew up playing in church. Everyone in my family played an instrument except for my sister, who just talked a lot and <laughs> still does. And um, But, you know, music was such a natural thing for us growing up that uh, even people in the neighborhood growing up in the projects in Milwaukee, even for people who were not musicians, most people were kind of musically inclined. Um, mm -hmm. We all had that, that neighbor or knew of that one person. I certainly had an updoor, upstairs neighbor. We used to call him Junior. And he knew the songs to all... He knew, he knew the words to all of the songs, all of the popular songs. Mo, you know, at, at that time, Motown was right. huge, you know. Right. But he could not sing if you gave him a million dollars. And it's like every other syllable he changed keys, you know. So, but, but you know, everybody just loved music. And so for me, um, you know, I'm 10 years and two days apart from my oldest brother, right? Mm -hmm. So because there was no father there, I always wanted to emulate what he did. And so at one point he kind of played, but he didn't play set. He just took lessons, you know. Right, right. But, um, you know, I always was just kind of beating on stuff and... You know, it was kind of a natural thing. And, right. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, when you're really young, you, you're trying to figure out what can you do to impress girls, you know. So, of course. Uh, That's I, the only reason I ever started playing drums in the first oh, place. Oh, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I realized that um, that would help me a little bit, you know. But um, but I just I just loved it. I just I just loved uh, sitting behind the instrument and... Uh, and, you know, for the first several years, I didn't really have a drum set. I just had, like, little pieces and, you know, plastic toy and pad and stuff, you know, so you just try right. to figure it out. But, you know, um, I think when I really got to junior high school was really when it was like, man, this is just, I did, just didn't want to do anything else. I participated in sports and all of that, but it was really the drums that I had to get back to, you know. So when you were coming up through the church, was it, only gospel or were you listening to jazz and Motown and, and all this other stuff? Cause I know that I talked to some people and they're like, I wasn't allowed to listen to anything other than gospel. You, you, yeah. That's kind of where I lived for a while, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, we grew up in the Baptist church and, and, uh, and so that's how we were raised, you know, and it wasn't, my mother wasn't strict. She just felt that anything other than gospel was kind of the devil's music, you know? Sure. Sure. Now, fortunately, that didn't last long. In fact, when she would be out of the house, we would listen to R&B and Motown and stuff, you know. Mm. And so we kind of knew what time she would come home work. <laughs> and so around that time, there would always be someone on the lookout, you know. Right. And, of course, there was no cell phones then, and sure. know, we barely had a house phone. So, But it's like, okay, mine's coming. So you, you take off the temptations, you put on Mahalia Jackson. You sit yep. there, mighty clouds of joy like you in it, you know. But um, your mom gets home, everybody's praying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it was, it wasn't, you know, much after that that, that my mom kind of loosened up the reins a little bit because my one of my brothers, um, was a trumpet player, Eddie Allen, he started playing in like funk bands and R&B bands. And mm -hmm. So it was kind of like we had to listen to it because we had to learn the songs, you know. Sure. So, and then she, you know, so it kind of loosened up a little bit, you know. And then my older brothers were the ones who really kind of like, look, mom, you know. It's okay. It's not like we're gonna be wild and doing crazy right. stuff. And so, right. 
But uh, yeah, it was kind of like that for me for a while. And it's funny, man, because a lot of musicians that I played with after that, years later, had very similar stories. I mean, when I first started playing with Freddie Hubbard, he used to tell me that he grew up in a very strict Pentecostal household where his mother would not allow him to listen or play jazz because, again, she said it was the devil's music. Right. And, um, and I remember he used to kind of jokingly say sometimes, but I realized there was a certain level of seriousness about it. We would talk sometimes. He said, Carl, I'm just trying to get the Holy Ghost on the bandstand. <laughs> no, so for people who grew up in the church, you, you kind of know what that is, you know. Right. But um, yeah, that was a big part of my upbringing. And one of the things that I learned from that that still stays with me now is understanding the importance of, of playing with a purpose, mm-hmm. and uh, and understanding how important the feeling of the music is, regardless if it's gospel, jazz, classical, country. It doesn't matter, you know. The music right. has to have a feeling to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that's so hard about playing not only drums, but just an instrument in general is to develop that because that's an intangible thing. Yeah. So like we can you can measure whether you can play paradiddles at 160 BPMs. Yeah, you can measure that sort of thing, but you can't measure whether it has feel. Yeah. Whether it swings, whether you're in the pocket, you yeah. know, whether whether you're playing supportively or not. So what is what's your what's your take on that for for people who are are trying to get to that intangible or trying to gain that intangible of of developing that feel or that swing or or something like that and really how to like quantify it? Yeah, well, I think it's diff- difficult to quantify, but I think the thing that for me personally, you you have to ask yourself what's your barometer. You know, if you're mm-hmm. playing with other people, is there a fe- there's a feeling that you get when it's happening, you know, in terms of the level of attention that you get from them. And I'm not talking about attention in terms of praise, but just in terms of the level of interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain feeling that you get when everything comes together and it's connected. And then the feeling that you get from watching people feeling like they're connected to what it is that you're trying to do. Right. You know, so. Um, and I think. It goes beyond technique. You know, this sure. is really not about a technical thing. It's it's about why are you playing what you're playing? What's your purpose? What story are you trying to tell? Is mm-hmm. it coming from an honest place? Which is a difficult thing for a lot of younger players because we get, and I went through it too, you get so caught up in who else is doing what, not understanding that whatever they're doing is kind of irrelevant to what it is that you should be doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and then that kind of gets into a kind of a spiritual thing or something else where you got to ask yourself, why are you doing what you're doing? And then but on you, some level, I mean, whether it's a religious thing or not, but like music is a spiritual thing. Yeah. I think yeah. anyway, and whether and not to like put any sort of like religious connotation on right. it, just just some sort of there's some sort of greater being there yeah when you're playing as i mean that i i think that way well i'll I'll tell you uh, you know one of the things that art blakey used to say all the time is that music is supposed to wash away the dust of everyday life Mm -hmm. and so i like that if you're playing for people and i tell young musicians this all the time if people have come to your performance be it a club a concert bar mitzvah uh, the state fair it doesn't matter and they have left feeling the same that they did when they first got there, you haven't done your job. Right. Uh, because if, if that's the case, then they can stay home or do something else. Right. I know for me, it's like, and that's just, that's, and that's part of what entertainment is. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if you go see a play, if you go see a movie, if you go see, um, uh, you know, a dance performance, you want to feel like your life has been transformed in some kind of way. Sure. And so, and I think one of the best ways of us to be able to do that is to kind of, uh, I won't say remove ourselves from the process because we're very much a part of the process, but understand that it's not about us. Right. You know, so like, for instance, if I'm playing... I, 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 it's not about let me find the hippest thing I can play. I mean, it's, it's, I know it's frustrating for guys sometimes when I've done clinics or I go places and people say, Carl Mano, you know, on that last set, you just played this thing. It was something, something. What was that? Like, man, I don't know. And I don't know if they think I'm just trying to be mean or funny or dismissive, but. You don't, don't want to give away your secrets? Yeah, I don't, but I don't <laughs> think that way. Right. Even people say, man, I transcribed this thing you did on that record. Would you. What was that? I said, man, I, I don't. It's something that happened in the moment that was inspired by what happened in the moment. Right, I don't lightning think, in a bottle. Yeah, I don't think about music that way. I don't practice it that way. You know, it's um, and not to, not to downplay or to uh, dismiss those who do, you know, uh, approach it that way. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's wrong in any way, but that's not the way that I approach it. That's just sure. just for me, you know. So I the other day I was talking to Billy Cobham and we were talking about sort of the the surface level and then sort of below the surface level kind of kind of playing. So was there was there a point in your career? Maybe I mean you would mention in junior high school you were saying that that's all you wanted to do was play music, but I think in everyone's career you're sort of going along on the surface and then you kind of fall into it and you're like oh and sort of the the door opens up and and your mind expands. Was there was there a real turning point in your life where you decided to get super deep on the instrument, or was was that always something that you were that you did? Well, it's funny that you mentioned Cobham. In fact, he and I just spoke via email the other day, and I felt like I had a name drop there. No, no, no. Listen, <laughs> it's all one family, man. But but he was someone who was part of that turning point for me in high school. Interesting. Now, and, and, and see, you understand my journey was that, you know, was gospel and R&B. And the way I came into jazz, I like to affectionately say, was through a side or a back door. I didn't come in the front door. Mm-hmm. And probably a lot of guys you talked to who were, quote unquote, jazz drummers didn't enter the front door. Right. In other words, this is not how we started off, you know. And so uh, back in high school, when I would listen to you know, Billy Cobham Spectrum and, and Total Eclipse and Funky Thought of Sings and all of these records, that was like, that was the God. I was like, yeah, you know, watching him to this day, to this day, and then we're talking, we're going back 40 years now, to this day, I'm still trying to figure out a way of getting to, to using three snare drums because <laughs> of Billy. You know, and and yeah. I, and I sometimes do because I have my main snare and I have a six by ten, and then I have this thing that I call a snore tom. DW calls it a ballad snare with the floor tom with snare throw offs on it that I yep. use on my right, and that's because of Billy, and because um, what inspired me was not only listening to him live, but then reading his backstory in terms of he was heavily involved in drum and bugle chords, and as I was, you know, as a, as a kid, and. Um, so Billy has been someone that I've admired, and he was part of that period that you just alluded to where I really started to get deep into learning more about the instrument as it was that I was trying to figure out what it was that was drawing me so close to the instrument. And I'll tell you, 
Billy has been an inspiration on many, many levels. <coughs> Two years ago, <coughs> excuse me, I was blessed enough to do PAS. And when the, it was the year that, uh, 2014, that Billy did it. And so we were kind of in the tech room. His guys were setting up his drums and other folks were setting up my drums. And we just kind of started jamming together. And it was just a wonderful moment just to be able to kind of spend that time with him. But I'll tell you, and, I, and not to divert, but I remember in 1991, I did this tour called the Jazz Futures. Mm-hmm. And we played uh, many, many places. But one of the places we played... Uh, was the Playboy Jazz Festival in L.A., and we also played the Tokyo Dome. And Cobham was there. And I remember uh, hanging with Cobham, and I said, uh, I said, Billy, and this was one of the first times I really got a chance to hang with him. I said, Billy, I want to ask you something. I said, I mean, when I was a kid, I used to read these interviews and these stories that you used to, as for exercise, chop down trees. Is that true? That sounds like some Paul Bunyan stuff, right? <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, I used to chop down trees, you know. Because for a long time, and even still now, he lived in Switzerland, you know? Right, yeah. And so um, he said, but I don't, I don't do that anymore. He said, what I do now, I have a, a tire, a truck tire tied to a, uh, to a long rope on a tree, and I just hit it with a baseball bat several times and switched sides. And he said, man, come to my room later. And I was like, I know he ain't going to have you ch- hit no, <laughs> no tires in his room. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, I took my stick bag and my pet right. pad, thinking he's going to show me some exercise. So I get to his room. He said, get on the floor. I said, get on the floor? What are you talking about? And he showed me five different sets of push-ups that he does every day. Really? This is in 1991, you know. But uh, I see him every now and then. We still kind of joke about that. But Billy, <laughs> Billy, Billy was really the guy who kind of really got me to dive deeper into the instrument. Right, right, right. Yeah, and he's, you know, it, he's what, 70-something now. Unbelievable, man. Um, you know, and he's like, he, he's like, he, it's like he's 40. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just, it's amazing. The the one thing that that he and I talked about, which I, I really do think is interesting, is sort of, you know, when, when, when that light switch goes off. And was there a time in your career when you when you were like, all right, that's it, that's all I want to do is play drums. I'm going to do that professionally, forever. Or was was it just sort of a, a gradual uh, a gradual progression that you went through? Well, the irony of it is that I never imagined doing anything else. Mm-hmm. It, it um, you know, for a lot of musicians, when you go to college, you know, or for a lot of people in general, not musicians. Uh, you know, you take a year or two to kind of figure out what you want to major in. You know, most of my friends who are musicians, you just knew from day one that's what you wanted to do. The only time I thought of anything other than playing, and it still had to do with music, strangely enough, was, you know, when I was about 10, 11 years old. And I was already playing drums. But when I was a kid, I used to have a problem with my mouth, with my mm-hmm. mother. In other words, I, I would get in the most trouble from mouthing off, you know? Right. And so when it got really severe, she would say, okay, you know what? Since you don't want to listen, don't touch. You can't play the drums for two days. I'm like, Ooh. oh, Lord. Just, I tell you what, just shoot me or something else. Cause that, <laughs> that, there's nothing really worse than that. And so uh, it got so bad. You know when you go through that young period where you think yep. you know more than everybody. So uh, it got so bad where, man, it's just, it's, there were times, three, four days, I couldn't play the drums. Well, she couldn't, didn't tell me I couldn't touch them. So I would walk around the house with the snare drum, or she sent me to the grocery store. I had a crash stumble on my arm, you know. I was like, man, this is, man, you know. So then I realized there were people who 
set up drums for a living called drum techs. And then I said, mm-hmm. nah, that's not what I want to do. Right. That was the only period where I imagined there would be something else. But it's pretty much always been about the instrument, about the drums. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at what point did you really start playing at, at a higher level? Well, um, I would say, you know, I started doing gigs when I was in high school. Right. Um, but it was really my freshman year of college. Mm-hmm. And I remember, uh, I'll never forget, I went to school my first year's University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. And uh, James Moody had come to town. Uh, he had come to the school to do a residency. And then a few, I got a chance to play with him there. And then a few months later, he got a call to play this club in Milwaukee called the Jazz Gallery. And then I got a call to come down and play with him. And I remember not being able to handle some of those fast temples. Right. And he didn't humiliate me. I humiliated myself. Um, he was very nice and very kind. But after kind of getting my butt kicked like that, it was the first time really that that had happened. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but it was such a wonderful thing that I felt like, man, there's so much. It was, and it was that pivotal moment where I realized there was so much more that I didn't know that I needed to learn about. And it was that moment where it was like, okay, this is another level. Right. And it was, right. it was from that that I started meeting other people and, you know, having other experiences that kind of took me in that direction. So we, you had mentioned, and this is sort of, uh, we talked about this already, but I, I meant to ask you, the the jazz futures that was the that was a Christian McBride thing, right? Well, no, it wasn't a Christian McBride thing. The, I, and Christian was involved. It okay. was really three groups plus put together. It was Benny Green's trio, which was mm-hmm. Benny Green, Christian McBride, myself, uh-huh. and then the front line of of Nicholas, uh, no, of uh, Roy Hargrove and uh, Antonio Hart, and then Marlon Jordan, Tim Warfield, and then Mark Whitfield was playing guitar so yeah okay. two front lot two guys from in the front line from one band two from another band the rhythm section which was benny's trio and then then there was uh there was mark whitfield okay so the yeah, idea knew- the idea was to take this was at the height of the quote-unquote young lions phase right and uh, i was the oldest in the band but the the idea at that time was to get take some young guys and kind of put them on the road you know we did a whole toured all summer it was a lot of fun because we were already all friends you know mm-hmm. I, I can't remember who i was talking to about the jazz futures I, I it escapes me now but i just i remember talking to, to somebody about it sometime i don't know anyway and then the uh, following year there was a jazz futures two with nicholas payton uh okay. brian blade uh chris thomas peter martin and a couple of other guys i got you yeah yeah i don't know who Ah, oh well, I don't remember who I was talking to about it, but um, so question about this is a little bit more of a sort of a technical, applicable thing. But I was watching one of your master classes, and you were saying about being able to swing the band with your ride cymbal, yes, and not relying on anything else. Can you sort of dive into that that concept and and more of like how you can practice that? How can you go into the practice room, or how can you get with the band? And really start to work on that. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and this is coming more from a traditional jazz perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, traditionally, a lot of the jazz melodies were based off the triplet in terms of rhythm. 
And the ride symbol is based off of the triplet. And so when we look at what it, is, what it is that the band is listening for, again, from a more traditional perspective from the drummer, they're listening for that ride symbol. And so I always say that, as my great friend Mr. Mogra Miller used to say, is that the music should be singing and dancing at all times. It's mm -hmm. that ride symbol that should be dancing. And so then the question becomes, who's your dance partner? Dance partner for the drums is the bass. And so it's that ride symbol that you're trying to line up with the bass. And so in terms of the way that I see it, I'm always trying to play the ride symbol in such a way where it's going to push the band forward. Mm -hmm. Everything else is just kind of the icing, you know, of the cake. Right. But this right. is pretty much the cake. And so right. in terms of how do you work on that, one of the things that I've always suggested is just playing the ride symbol and singing melody. You know, so if this, let's say, if this is the ride symbol. Boopy. Booby doo doo. Booby. Boo booby doo doo. Booby booby doo dee. Be sure it will ah ah ah. Boo wee doo. Show who boo doo booby doo. Booby. Now, if you notice in doing that, I fluctuated and played with the time a little bit in my phrasing as I was singing, mm -hmm. but I didn't play so much with that ride symbol. Right. The reason that I do that is it's about discipline, to be able to play the ride symbol consistently without changing. Now, ultimately, on the bandstand, we're doing what is whatever the music is asking for. Sometimes the music is, is asking for, for more of a skip pattern uh, or more of a quarter note or what have you. But the reason I explain it this way, particularly for a lot of younger drummers, is because many, when you're young, sometimes guys haven't developed that discipline to be able to play simple. Mm -hmm. So it becomes ding, 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 all these other things. I mean, I've been, I can't tell you, Nick, how many times I've said, look, man, I'm going to buy you a dinner. If you can just play me four bars of that ride symbol without change. Yeah, okay, cool. They get to bar three, ding, 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 ding. Ah, so funny. <laughs> So it's just, you know, and, it, and it's birthed out of a very basic and fundamental principle, which is everything complicated is a compilation of simple things. And this is something that I talk a lot about when I do clinics. And this is a principle that I learned uh, from a lot of different people. But Max Roach was one, someone, someone who used to talk to me about, you know, you got to master the fundamentals. You got to master mm -hmm. being able to play simple and consistent before you start to change it up. And so right. the thing is, how do we just play that ride symbol at different temples, at different dynamics, and make it swing with just the melody? Mm -hmm. And then understand that everything else is adding to that, you know? Sure. So for a lot of jazz drummers, a big part of our signature is coming from the ride symbol. Mm -hmm. And every ride symbol has what I call a shape to it. If you listen to Billy Higgins' ride symbol, it's got a completely different shape from Mark Blakey, very different from Mark Taylor. Very different from Tootie Heath, very different from Elvin, from Ben Riley, from Mel Lewis, from we can go on and on. Right. You know, but uh, but the shape of that ride symbol is uh, has a lot to do with how they're pushing the music forward. Mm -hmm. I think that's a an interesting point. You were talking about the shape of the ride symbol where you have to also develop active listening and and, you know, learn how to listen. Yeah. almost. 
And that's a thing that took me sort of years to develop. I would work with, you know, different drummers and they're like, all right, this is what you need to hear. And I'm like, man, I'm just not, I just don't hear it, yeah. you know? And yeah. then I think once I realized, uh, once it's, it's, it reminds me of, do you remember those, those pictures that they would hang on the wall and they were blurry, but if you stared at them long enough, the image would <laughs> pop out of them? Yeah, yeah. Like I, that is like the way that I think about it, but like, but orally yeah. and where it's like, it finally you hear it and it's like, Oh, yeah. okay. Now I hear the melody or now I hear, you know, the shape of the ride symbol or, yeah. or whatever it is. And this may be putting you on the spot, but do you have, did you ever do anything like that? Like active listening exercises or, or, or ways to sort of teach people how, how to listen? That sounds kind of funny to no. say, but. No, no. Well, I tell you, Nick, it's funny, man, because a few years ago I started writing an uh, outline of a book that I was going to write, and I still intend to write uh, on how to listen. And so before, what Paul put the pause button on, there are a lot of books out on how to listen. Not necessarily how to listen to music, but just how to listen in general that I started mm -hmm. reading, just to kind of, you know, uh, not be repetitive and try to bring something fresh. But the point is, uh, to answer your question, yeah. I went through a period where I started to uh, find other ways of listening. And what prompted that was being on the road and traveling so much where I didn't have enough time behind the instrument. Mm -hmm. So I would hear people talk about, man, you got to learn how to practice away from the instrument. I'm like, well, yeah, you practice away from the instrument. Right. And I understood that a lot of that had to do with listening. And, and, and then how is it that you can put on a record with, in a room with a few other people you guys hear something completely different. Right. And so um, I had to, to learn to listen in different ways. Specifically, for instance, even as I'm listening now to something, I may just let it all come to me. Other times I'll, I'll, have, I'll do what I call intentional listening, where I say, okay, let me intentionally try to pick out what's happening with the drummer's ride cymbal and say the bass player's right hand, you know, what's kind of pushing this and just this, this train forward. Let me listen to the drummer's left hand and the piano player's left hand. See what's happening in terms of comping. Okay, now let me listen to left hand and, and the bass drum to see what kind of conversations are going on between the limbs. And so, yeah, there is very much a lot of active listening going on. And, mm -hmm. and in the past few years, I've come to that place to where I say that quite often how we hear music is a major determining factor in terms of how we play. Sure. You see, and I think that's something that we kind of uh, maybe discount a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, because just as you said, sometimes your friends will say, well, man, you got to hear this. And you're like, well, man, I can't hear. And because right. music is a language. Right. And I make the analogy quite often, you know, for many, many years, I've been trying to learn how to speak Japanese. And, uh, and I remember I had. That's gone, a hard language to learn. It's a hard language to learn. But ironically, I had gone to Europe many, 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 many times before I, have gone, before I had actually gone to Japan the first time. I've now been to Japan about 78 times. But 78? Yeah. Jeez. So, but the, the, the thing is, when I first heard that language, uh, I connected with that language so much quicker than I did all of the other European languages. Really? Now, the very first time, I mean, the person who got me started was a wonderful saxophonist named Kenny Garrett. He's fluent. And so when I first started speaking, of course, I could not hear it that way, of course, to be able to have a... Like, if you want to say hello, you say konnichiwa. 
uh, Kenny would say, well, man, just say, you see somebody, just say Konnichiwa. And I would say, Konnichiwa. <laughs> it was like, you know, one of these horror movies in slow motion or something, right? <laughs> and then, of course, as I started to hear it, I could hear the speed of it. I can hear the inflection. I can hear how you can say, Konnichiwa, genki desu ka? You know, and you start to hear the different inflections. And, and what attracted me to the language was the rhythm of the language. Mm. Very much different from, you know, speaking French, German, or Italian, or Spanish, or any of those, right. you know. And so, again, it, going back to how I heard the, that language, and, and I, I, I make the parallel to how do we hear music. And so when we talk about active, active listening, one of the things that I do in listening uh, I, 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 like I said, I listen a lot of different ways, what I call intentional listening, to be able to figure out those things that I feel I can connect with. You know, mm-hmm. now to make that applicable in terms of how do we now take that information and to be able to use that, mm-hmm. say in the setting or in the form of transcription. A good friend of mine is a wonderful guitarist by the name of Rodney Jones. He used to say, we used to talk about transcribing all the time. And he said, well, you know, Carl, one of the things that I do with my students, instead of just having them, you know, transcribe a whole West Montgomery or Grant Green or, you know, Jim Hall solo, I would tell them to find that part of the solo that you feel connected to. And I never thought about that before. He's, and then, so now as I started doing it, I said, you know, it's one thing to say, well, I can play, you know, Philly Joe's whole solo from Two Bass Head. Oh, that's no small feat. And that's great that you can do that. But you know what? I can put that record on and listen to Philly Joe do it, right? right? So, but um, the other part of that, when you say, okay, but what part of that solo that I feel touches me, mm-hmm. right? And so one of the things that I always say to students, I say, you know, during the first lesson, my, first, my favorite question is what if? And that's part of their job is to always remember that because I'm always asking what if. And so if you say, okay, here's a great solo, perfect example. There's a record called uh, Bags Meets West. Milt mm-hmm. Jackson, West Montgomery, Philly Joe. They play Stablemates, Benny Golson's song. Well, Philly Joe takes this incredible solo out front, right? And uh, it's a great solo. But the thing that jumped out at me was this section where he played dot, 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 dot. And whenever I play that for students, I say, what is this? Dot, 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 dot. Specifically, Dot, 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 dot. Nick, you can't imagine the answers that I get. Oh, that was a nine over 17 and a half, and that was a triplet. I said, no, man, just four quarter notes. <laughs> it was four quarter notes, right? So again, everything complicated this is a compilation of simple things, and things are so much more simpler than we sometimes think. But again, how do we hear that? How do mm-hmm. we hear it, and how do we process it? And so my point is, when it came to that solo, I said, okay, the thing that made me go, ooh, was those four quarter notes. So now right. how can I do something with that and mm-hmm. make it my own? But this is part of what we are cha- called to do when we right. transcribe. Yeah, Take somebody else's ideas and make it your own. Because everything out here is on loan, man. Yeah. We don't own anything. We're just stewards <laughs> of it, you know? Yep. <laughs> so we just, it's just on loan, you know? Right. I like that. I like that.
This session is brought to you by the good folks at Gretsch Drums, and I've spent a lot of time out there at the DW factory, which is now under, you know, Gretsch is under DW, and there's a lot of kits there that I've been checking out, especially the Broadcaster series, so think I'm going to be getting me a Broadcaster kit. In the meantime, you can check out Gretsch.com. They got a brand new website, and all of their amazing looking and sounding drums are there at Gretsch.com. Also, Promark has been a sponsor for the podcast for a while, and they're excited to announce the release of their new Mike Portnoy stick, which has Active Grip technology. So Active Grip heats up while you're playing, and it gets tacky so that as you sweat and as your hands heat up, you're not going to lose grip on the stick. You can learn more about that at Promark.com. Last but not least, Audible.com is one of my favorite companies because they produce audiobooks so that you can listen on the go rather than reading. And I love reading, but I travel a lot. I'm on the go a lot. I use Audible every single day. The book that I just listened to is called Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. I really advise you to check that out. Also, The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Best thing, you can get a free audiobook if you go to audible.com forward slash drummer sign up for your free account audible.com forward slash drummer d-r-u-m-m-e-r and sign up for your free account and download your one free book no charge and you'll be good to go so check it out audible.com forward slash drummer ego is the enemy or the four hour work week are two books that i recommend that you should definitely check out now let's get back into it with the man himself carl allen So if, if one of your students was saying, hey, man, you know, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be away from the instrument for a while, but I really want to keep practicing. That's what you would suggest, maybe some transcribing and, and picking out pieces that that speak to them. And yeah, well, and then my question is, unless you've been sent away for hard time, why are you <laughs> going to be away from the instrument that long? Sure. Because sure. you could always find a pad somewhere, you know. Yeah. But then in terms of what do you do, um, you know singing the solos. You know, I've often said, you know, Freddie Hubbard used to talk to me about the importance of, of singing solos, because if you can, you can sing them, that means you can hear them. If you can hear them, you have a better chance of being able to play them. Mm-hmm. And so um, just finding ways to be able to internalize it so that you can then process it. And so when it's time for you to play it, you can personalize it. Have you ever thought about musicians who have that innate ability to read something or to play a song for the first time and make it sound like they 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 own it, like mm-hmm. they've played it all their lives, versus those who have played a song for you know six months or ten years and always sounds like they're still reading it. Yep. You know, and so part of that I think speaks to how do we hear it, how do we process it, how do we ultimately get to that place to where we're owning the music, we're owning the mm-hmm. process. And that's kind of where I'm at right now in terms of my growth and development. Every time I play, I want to own the music. Sure. I think that was always a earlier in my career. When, well, I shouldn't even say earlier in my career. When I first started playing drums, where I hated learning my rudiments because they just they didn't sound like music to me. Yeah. And it was just like, that, 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 that. That's all I heard. Yeah. But then once I made them musical, then it just it sort of opened up all the doors for me. And I was like, Oh, okay. I can hear this differently. Now I can practice all this stuff and make music out of it. Now it's a totally different ball game. Yeah. Well, you know? I'll tell you something, you know, and I've told this story in clinics and with other people many, many times. So this is really 
more for those two people out there who may hear this who don't know who I am who will be sent to that fourth world country. Right. Uh, I, I remember just briefly having a conversation with Max Roach once. We were at a club, and I said, Max, what do you practice? And he says, singles and doubles. That's all he said. A few minutes later, go by. I said, so Max, you know, you're chilling. You're at the instrument. You're just trying to work some things out. What are you trying to get to? The singles and doubles. So I figured, okay, Max is kind of clever. So, so I figured, let me kind of come through another way. So I said, Max, sure. you know, if you're just chilling, you're just, try, you're just messing around, you're right? You're trying to get to something. Well, yeah. He said, Carl, you're looking for another answer. It's singles and doubles. He said, everything you play is a single, double, or multiple bounce, period. And I was like, wow. You're right. Yeah. He, says, he said, then the key is, how do you change that up and mix it up and, and make it yours? Mm-hmm. And I had mm-hmm. to stop and think about it. Everything you play is a single, a double, or multiple bounce. Different combinations, right? Yeah. That's really what it is. Mm-hmm. And so that was a, a pivotal moment for me because it helped me kind of demystify some of the things I was working on at the time. Did it change the way you practice? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Completely. And it also changed the way that I heard music. And mm-hmm. it also gave me more clarity in understanding how and why he played the way that he played. Mm-hmm. You know, I know Michael Carvin talks about that a lot too, about singles and doubles and playing, you know, he hears stuff and he's like, that's a paradiddle or, you know, it's double paradiddle, double, double paradiddle, diddle, you know, and he's yeah. just like, he'll hear melodies like just in, in singles and doubles all the time. Yeah. And see for drummers, a lot of times, you know, especially when you're young, as you said, you know, you didn't really dig dealing with the, the rudiments. There's a rudiment in everything you play. It's just like if you play a melodic instrument, part of what you play is part of a scale or a mode. You may you mm-hmm. may not know what that scale or mode is, but it is. It's part it, of a scale or is. mode. You know. Sure. Sure. So now we I asked you about your practice technique, and I always like to get I always like to get my guests uh, advice on practice, not necessarily what to practice, but more specifically how to practice. Yeah. Because everybody has a different way. And I think that the audience can always pull a piece out of yours, pull a piece out of Billy Cobbins, pull a piece out of Michael Carvin's and put it together and form their own thing. Because I think you got to do what works for you. Yeah. Uh, so what, what's your advice on how to practice? Well, um, this other book that I'm writing has something to do on that, but, uh, See, I'm just setting all these up for you so yeah, you can just knock them out yeah. of the park. And it also puts a little pressure on me that I better finish these books. Right? <laughs> yeah. but, People are going to be listening to this interview looking like, man, that was five years ago. He still didn't write these books. But, you know, um, that's a great question because, uh, and I think practice, you have to find a way to make it personal and, and relevant to what you're specifically dealing with. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of creating your own warm-ups. And I'm a fan of, of warm-ups uh, addressing your weaknesses. So one of the things that I heard someone say many years ago, which I've always felt was so really hip, one of the things that I, I challenge people to do is to create a list of your strengths and your weaknesses, mm-hmm. right? Because ultimately you want your weaknesses, the things in that pile of weakness to be able to go over to that pile of strengths. So in doing that, just generically speaking, I would say I look at what are some of the things that I'm struggling with? So I, I will try to attack those things more than the things that I think I do pretty well. Right. Now, the challenge 
is that we know that playing music is therapeutic. So when we sit down and play, we want to play the stuff that's going to make us feel good. Of course. Uh, we can play this pocket. Yeah, we're smiling and we're imagining somebody else listening and they're smiling. So we can do that all day. But then when, you know, someone says, well, man, can you play this, you know, a groove in seven? If we've not worked on that, it becomes more, you know, problematic. So um, the short answer is every day, uh, fortunately, uh, pretty much every day I'm touching the instrument. And so uh, quite often when I sit down to practice, the very first thing that I'm asking myself is, what did I not like the last time I played? Say if I played last night. What is it that I didn't like? So I'm going to take that to the practice room. And so what I try to do before I practice, I try to think of a very basic principle, which is uh, measurable progress. Uh, there's a difference between measurable progress and, and, and with measurable time. So in other words, mm -hmm. I want to look at when my time is up, what is it that I've accomplished? Sure. So, the outcome-based practice rather than practicing for three hours. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Because you have to learn to manage yourself to deal with that time more effectively. You know, mm -hmm. people talk about, oh, I got to deal with time management. Well, that's a misnomer in that because you can't manage something that doesn't change. So you can't manage time. You can only right. manage yourself to deal with time more effectively. So be when I sit down to practice, I'm always asking myself, when my time is up in this room, whether it's two hours, or four hours, or 26 minutes, whatever the case might be, what is it that I would have liked to have worked on? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I make the analogy of if you drive, quite often you don't get in your car and drive for 20 minutes and then ask yourself, where do you want to go? Sure. Right? You think about where you would like to ultimately end up, at least the neighborhood, mm -hmm. before you take off. So metaphorically speaking, when you sit down and practice, you say, okay, this is what I want to deal with. Now, some people say, well, man, sometimes I just feel like jamming. Well, this is still a direction that you have. Right. So every day, you know, um, I, I kind of start with that, which, which uh, in many cases will start off with warm-ups. And I say for younger drummers in particular, it's really important that you have a warm-up exercise. And I would say 15 to 30 minutes at least of a warm-up warm exercise. Mm -hmm. And then you get into whatever it is that you need to do. I think the key, a big part of the key, I will say, is consistency. Yeah. You know, whatever you're working on now, if you don't touch it again for the next eight months, you're really not going to see much progress in that. Sure, sure. You know, and it's a lot of, you know, it's kind of common sense stuff, I think, you know. Mm -hmm. And I always, my thing is that I always say that if you're, whatever it is, you, whatever your goal is, whether it be to practice, you know, a half hour a day or an hour a day or whatever it is, and then inside of that you have your goals, if you want to play drums for a half hour for fun and just play all the stuff that you know, that's fine. Yep. But you can't count that as your practice time. Right. That's your that's your leisure. So instead of watching TV, you're going to play drums for a little while. Yeah. But then after that, then you got to go to work. Well, but, but then you, you got to put the work in. And that's you know you've hit the nail on the head because practice should be work. Sure. And I think a lot of times if it's not fun, we don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's like almost anything. Listen, right before you know I started in this interview, you know I, I'm at the gym, you know mm -hmm. tr trying to deal with these weights and that dog on treadmill trying to. <laughs> lose one of these stomachs I got, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, and it ain't supposed to be fun. Man, I, the funny thing is be, right before speaking of weights and losing weight and all that stuff. So I'm in the middle of this program myself and I ate at uh, 11 or I ate at 11 right before our interview. That was the first time I ate since Sunday night. Woo! I, I went on this like 40 hour fast that, that I've 
that I was doing. I was like, man, I was like, if we got to do this interview before I eat, I'm going to be all loopy and <laughs> a 40 hour fast. Yeah, I ate, I ate like I ate almost 4000 calories on Sunday, all day Sunday. It's called a refeed. So I would eat up Sunday night until I go to bed and then don't eat again until today at, at 11. Wow. That's yeah, the first time doing that? First time I ever did that. Wow. Yeah, it was rough. Last time? <laughs> uh, no, you know what? It actually wasn't bad as I anticipated. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, it actually wasn't. I thought I was going to be like losing my mind. It actually wasn't that bad. Oh, okay. Well, I think because I ate so much on Sunday. <laughs> but it also shows the power of the mind when you make a decision to do something, you know? Mm-hmm. A lot I'm a big th- believer in, in just manifesting anything that you want as long as you're and you see, know, but your mind. See, now, I mean, and that ties right into what we're talking about because a lot of times we think about things, but we don't make decisions. Mm-hmm. Because it's only when you make a decision that that decision transcends to, to energy that creates that energy that, that puts you into action mode. Yep. Until then, it's just a thought. So it's yep. like when you talk about practicing. You know, you can sit and think about it, but until you actually get in there and do it, this, will you actually see any benefits? I've often said, you know, when I ask people about practice, it's so funny because when I do clinics, and so let's talk about practice every time. That's when somebody's got to go to the bathroom, somebody got to <laughs> get another grandmama call and say the giraffe died or something. You know, <laughs> nobody wants to talk about practice, right? Right. But, right. Um, you know, it, it's, it's that thing, though, man, where I say that is the thing that you do when it's only you in the room. And then you might join yourself, and then you might come in and join yourself. But it just basically it's just you, right? Because when you start talking about, well, I have practice with my friend. No, that's a rehearsal. Mm-hmm. You know, practice. This is just you. Right. This is just you. Now, turn off your phone. Oh, get off of oh, Facebook and oh, Instagram. Don't get me started. Yeah. yeah, and that's discipline, man. That's hard, you know. And I'm of the age, man, where when I was a kid, we didn't have those things. Right. You know, right. and you know, one of the things that I learned. And it's, it's difficult in this time of all this technology um, to be able to be focused like that. Mm-hmm. You know, but I came up at a time, man, where we didn't have all of that stuff. And you just, you just understood that, yeah, you, at some point you're going to have to put the six to eight hours in a day. Right. Every day for a couple of years. That's just what it is. Mm-hmm. Not if you feel like it. Not if. You know, the, it's not raining. It's just not, it's just what it has to be, you know. Man, I did it in college. It was like 2 in the morning, 2 in the afternoon, 2 in the evening, and then 2 late at night. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the thing a long time. I've often said, man, as musicians, our paths and our journeys cannot be the same as others who are not musicians. Yep. It's just, it's just it can't, it can't, you know, because what we're trying to get to, I'm not saying it's better. It's just different from what other people are trying to get to. It's mastery. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. It's, I look at it like the same as I compare myself to like a world class athlete. Yep. You know, they're, you know, Kobe Bryant's doing the same thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, yeah. it's interesting when you, when you look at that parallel and that analogy, because if you think about when we talk about how we practice and you think about how an athlete prepares, mm-hmm. you know, I don't care if you play baseball or football or basketball, you don't just put your uniform on, go on the court or on the field and just start hitting and running. Right. There's a warm up. And a lot of those guys, when they, they warm up, then they do their, their routine, and then there's a cool down, you mm-hmm. know? And so when I was a kid, I, you, know, I, I, you know, I learned about how to do a cool down and all of that, you know? And, and that was when I was really putting in those eight hours a day, you know? But 
you know, it's it's um, that whole process, man, of being disciplined enough to say, let me shut everything off. Just and it's and it's so hard with a lot of younger people, though, man. Just to be able mm-hmm. to say, no, I, you know, even I'm gonna have a separate device for my music, whether it's an iPod or something, where I can't get emails, where I can't see Facebook, where I can. Right. It's just you know, I'll have a separate metronome or whatever. You know, and maybe we had, I mean, maybe we had an advantage because even, you know, when I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you, but all through college and everything, like I had a cell phone, but it didn't have, I didn't have, there was no Facebook or, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, or anything like that. So I wasn't distracted by my cell phone Yeah, and there was, you know, there was not all this social media and stuff. So when I went in to the practice room, I had a metronome that I carried in my bag and, yeah. and that was it. I didn't have like, my phone wasn't going off and yeah, yeah. there's all these notifications and people texting and calling and yeah, yeah. Instagramming. And well, it's, it's funny. I often say, what would Art Blakey say about this right now if he was still alive? You know, because, man, I've seen guys on the bandstand in between their solos and they're checking their phone. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Oh, man, I just, you know, I'm so old school, man. I just, yeah. I don't know if you're old. I don't, I just don't think that that belongs. Yeah, it doesn't belong. And if, you, if you're if you in my band and you do that, you just told me you're ready to leave the band. Right. Because right. that, that's what will happen. <laughs> you just... Submitted your resignation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think that that the the discipline and learning that sort of thing either it takes you a long time to figure that out on your own, or you get some sort of a mentor. And I know that you strongly believe in in finding yourself a mentor Absolutely. and getting someone to to sort of help you go down that road. What's your advice on on finding a mentor? And because I think a lot of people are like, oh, you need to find a mentor, and it's like, okay. How? Yeah. How do I do that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think in most communities, in most cities, if you go to a club, there are always older musicians there playing. Mm-hmm. And and most guys I know in, all around the world, really, not just here in New York, are willing to kind of, you know, talk to, to guys if they know they're willing to listen. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a humbling process that you have to go through to say, listen, I never said to Benny Golson. I never, I never said to Ron Carter. I never said to others, I want you to be my mentor. Right. Um, I just humbled myself and just would ask them questions, and they knew that I was interested in hearing the answer. Uh, whether I wanted to hear it, they knew that I would listen to it. You know. I was going to say, sometimes you, gotta, you, you have to walk away with your tail between your legs because yeah. you just got your ass handed to you. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah. listen, man, I'm 55, man, and, and, and I have... No problems um, taking instruction from those mm-hmm. guys, you know. And uh, it's so funny because these are guys that I've been playing with on and off for 30 years. Right. And um, I still pause. When I talk to Benny Golson, I still pause because I still want to say Mr. Golson. Right. That's just out of respect, you know. And... Um, you know, it's it's funny because my son is 22, and uh, he's known these guys all his life. And like, you know, with Golson, you know, he calls him, you know, Uncle Uncle Benny or Mister, you know, Mister. And so for a long time, because the way he was raised, if you see him, even when he was like 15, he's like, "I Mister Benny." I mean, Mister Golson, uh, <laughs> Uncle Benny. You know, because he just knows. That, sure. You know, you don't just say Yo Benny. You know, mm-hmm. it's just not gonna happen. You know, mm-hmm. so. It's um, but I think you know you you go to a club or you go to where people are. 
that know something that you don't know. And, and not to say that they're the perfect example of what you want to be or who, what you would want to be like. They have information that you need. You need to mm-hmm. ingratiate yourself and, and ask them, can you teach me about this? What do I need? And see, an understanding that a, a mentor is not someone who's going to placate and pacify you all the time. Right. They're someone who's going to try to help bring balance. I mean, mm-hmm. there have been times where, you know, I just was being a drag. And right. you know, not and it was Benny said, Carl, listen, man, you you gonna have to chill that. You can't talk to people like that. Now, I know you're upset about the drums, and I know blah 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 blah. You can't do that, you know. Right. And I knew because of my respect and love for him, I wasn't gonna argue with him. I wasn't gonna talk back. And I'm mm-hmm. talking about even at forty, you know. But uh, but I think we have to have someone like that to bring us checks and balances. Right. You know, right. and again, it's not so much that you even agree with everything that they say or stand for, mm-hmm. but they certainly have something to offer that you don't. Right. And man, they- when I was I was twenty, twenty three years old, and and I was in the studio with so you know you know Joey De Francesco, sure, obviously. yeah. So his brother Johnny, he and I cut a record together, and but before we, I was working with him for a while, and another drummer named Glenn Farricone. And we were all in the studio and we were just kind of like, we we're just hanging, drinking wine and everything. And we're talking and Johnny said something about my playing and was like, you know, you got to like, you got to start playing more melodically. And, and then all of a sudden it sort of opened up this can of worms. We have this long conversation for three hours. Mm. When I left, I'm like, man, I got to I, I feel like the worst drummer in the world, but yeah. I, I realized that I got to get my stuff together. Right. Yeah. So, and he actually called me the next day. And was like, are you cool? Is everything all right? And I was like, no, I, I need, I want to hear that kind of stuff. And he was like, it just, I knew that you would be able to handle it. And it was just something that needed to be said. And we think that it's going to make you a better player. Yeah. But you had to hear it. And I didn't want to hear it at the time. Yeah. I didn't want to hear him like bashing my playing, but he did it in a constructive way to where it was like, it motivated me to just get back into the practice room and sort of change my entire approach. And it, totally changed the way that I play. Yeah. You know, yeah. but it it wasn't easy to hear in the beginning. Oh no. And I'll tell you, you know? man, I'll tell you, you know, one of the lessons, my biggest mentor was my mom. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that she used to tell me, and, and Benny Golson would talk about this too, is that you always want to leave a place better than it was when you first got there. Yeah. Whether it's a relationship, whether it's on the bandstand with the music, whether it's whatever it is. You know, and and that's it's something that that I would let slip from time to time. I'll never forget, man, we were in Europe once with Benny. And man, I was just really livid about these drums. And I felt it was just disrespectful the way they were dealing with us in terms of the drums. Because, you know, mm-hmm. okay, they, you don't have exactly what I need. Okay. But try to do the best you can. Right. Well, they gave me some crappy drums. But the drums that I actually requested, they actually had there sitting on the side of the stage. It's just that I couldn't play them. Why? Uh, it, it was, I don't know. It was like, and I'm saying, well, maybe is somebody else playing them later while we're playing it. And they right. them? No, 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 no. It was this, you know, jazz guys don't play this kid. You, you guys play this kid. You know, it's I like we're second class citizens. I was really pissed. So I just kind of lost it and let them know in some very, uh, interesting ways <laughs> and i remember benny pulled me apart pulled me aside he said carl listen man he said i understand that the drums are not what you want 
He said, but you got to find a way to talk to people to give so that they will not only give you what you want, but be happy to give you what you want. He said, now, you know, I can step in and I will. They'll give you what they what what you want because they have to because of me. That's mm-hmm. not necessarily the way you want to do things. And it opened my eyes about, you know, he's right. And then I had to think about, it's not just me. You right. know, I'll leave there because I was really young at the time. And I will leave there, and they may not even remember my name, but they'll say, oh, that guy that was playing with Benny Golson. Right. So whose name is being pulled through the mud? It's Benny's. And Benny didn't do anything wrong. It was me exactly. that was to be in the butthole, right? Right, right. So I was like, okay. It was a great lesson. It was a hard one, but it was one that I had to learn. Mm-hmm. What's to say you'll catch a lot more bees with honey than you will with vinegar, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think that, you know, and I, I think there's a level of, you don't have to bend over backwards and let people sort of walk all over you. But, but yeah, there's a way and there's a way to treat people and talk to people. And, and it it ends up making your life a lot easier if you, if you realize that and just talk to the people, you know, the way that you would want to be. Talking. Yeah. Well, you know? I'll tell you, you know, one of the lessons that I had to learn when I was much younger, I, my filter, I had to work on my filter and still do. But if I saw something that was jive, mm-hmm. I would let them know it was jive. Right. You know, and then, of course, as I got older, it's like, no, I don't have to do that. You know, just it is what it is. And, you know, I ain't going to really change much, but it's like, you know. Right. So, you know, it's we grow over time, hopefully. Sure, 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 so. sure. So speaking of, of mentorship, if people want to connect with you and take lessons from you or anything like that, do you is that something that you do? Yeah, you can go to uh, to my website. You can send me an email, uh, Carl Allen Jazz or Carl Allen Info at gmail.com or Carl at CarlAllen.com. And, um, you know, I, I don't have a lot of time to do a lot of students. I usually will take a, a few, and it's every couple of weeks, depending on my schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still touring a lot, you know, still doing a lot of clinics and residencies and things. So, um, But I, I love the whole process of teaching. I love the process of mentoring. And, um, you know, as now as I sit, and I don't really normally think this way. But, I mean, someone recently I was talking to, they said, Carl, do you realize so many of the, today's young drummers who are out there actually studied with you at some point or a lot of musicians who are out here playing, you know, they were under your watch when you ran the program at Juilliard. And I hadn't really thought about it like that. And it's like, wow, mm-hmm. you know, but it's a testament, not so much of what I did, but a testament to what I was able to do with a great team of people in terms of right. other faculty and other administrators. And so... It's really great to see when I turn on, you know, I don't watch a lot of late night TV, but if I turn on and see uh, John Baptiste and, you know, Joe Saylor playing drums, you know, and those guys are students of mine. And, That's awesome. And, you know, and again, it's not about patting myself on the back, but it's really great to see that all of the things that, you know, I tried to put in place to try in terms of a, a program and a curriculum that helped them get to that next level. Sure. You know, sure. it's gratifying to see that. And it's a testament to, to the things that you've done and the, and the story career that you've had so far. So, yeah. And it's, you know, and, and it's not over. It's still a, a work in progress. Well, that's I'm what I was going to ask you. So what do you, what do you have, uh, what do you have coming up that, that you're excited about or that you want people to know about beside the two books that you're, you're writing? Well, there's a, there's a couple of projects that I have of my own. The one that I've been putting a lot of energy in is called the art of Elvin. And um, and it was a project that I did a while ago, and I kind of put it on the back burner. And then a few years ago, 
prior to uh, PAS, uh, they called me. PAS said, "Look, Carl, we want you to do a clinic, and we know that um, you know you have this project, this tribute to to Art Blakey, and um, we're inducting Art into the Hall of Fame, PAS Hall of Fame. Can you bring the band here?" So when we did that, it, it created a lot of buzz and a lot of interest. And so for the past few years, we've been I've been touring with that a bit. And again, Art Blakey and Elvin Jones, who this is a tribute to, are two of my musical and personal mentors. Mm-hmm. So um, doing more gigs and residencies with that band is something that I'm interested in. I have an, <laughs> excuse, <coughs> excuse me, another project that I just started called the Heritage Band. That um, it's a collection of different guys from different genre, uh, different eras that I play with. That we kind of celebrate the music people that we've played with, like Steve Therese in the band. You know, he plays Saturday Night Live, but, you know, of course, he played with Woody Shaw and Rossan Roland Kirk. And so we do some Woody Shaw music, David Williams on bass, who, you know, is from, uh, from Trinidad, so some Calypso stuff. Just, you know, a collection of different things. And then um, other groups that I'm still playing with, Chris McBride, Benny Golson, mm-hmm. Stanley Cowell, and Rainy Rosness, and a bunch of other things. And uh, I'm at a point right now in my career, in my life, where... Uh, you know, I'm being more selective about what I'm doing because I don't sure. don't want to just be a drummer for hire. And nothing mm-hmm. that not that there's anything wrong with that, but music is so personal for me that I want every situation to really mean something to me. Sure. It's well, not yeah, just a that... gig. It's not just you know because I take it personal, man. It's like right. someone calls me for a gig. I want to get the music in advance. I want to have this stuff together. So. I want to, you know, give it. I, I don't. People say, "Oh, you give it one hundred and ten percent." There's no such thing, man. It's a hundred percent. Right. You know, now there's a hundred or less. You know, we can raise the bar where that hundred is. You know, but if I'm gonna give a hundred percent, which I do every time, it's got to be something I believe in. Sure. You know, so, I think you've earned that, right? Yeah, and so I, I'm, I'm kind of there right now, and just, it's just, I'm just enjoying life, man, and I'm enjoying right. connecting with. So many of my peers and friends, younger musicians, older musicians, drummers. But, you know, as you know, Nick, this is a, the drumming community is a very close and personal community. It is. It is. You know, and I think more so than almost any other instrument, man, it's like the level of respect that I have for Dennis Chambers, Billy Cobham, Calvin Rogers, great gospel drummer. Oh man, I love Calvin. I actually just had a, uh, they did a, a piece on me in Drum Magazine, and I talked about Calvin in the piece about how, I mean, I interviewed him. He was amazing, and then like donated some time for Drummer's Resource. Just like an amazing dude. Yeah. The bot, like lo- I love that guy. Well, and I'll tell you, the, my point is, is the level of respect I have for all of those guys is the same as I do for Elvin and Arden Higgins and Mel Lewis and all of those guys. I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, some years ago, uh, when I was endorsing this other symbol company, I called them up and I said, listen, uh, I know Calvin's playing your symbols. I need his information. So they, they sent me his information. I sent them a text. I still have the text. I said, listen, man, you don't know me, but you know, my name's Carl Allen. I'm a drummer. And I just want you to know, man, you are like the Elvin Jones of gospel drumming for me. So he sent me a text back. Is this Carl Allen the drummer? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and so we were mutual fans of each other. And and man, I, I mean, I listened to him probably 
if not every day, almost every day. And I say right. that not to say, let me go check out some Calvin, but I listen to so much gospel music from Fred Hammond and Marvin Sapp to LaShawn Mitchell to a number of other people that he records with. Right. You know, so I'm listening to his stuff all the time, you know, so I'll, you know, I'll have on the Marvin Sapp and the next track is, is Marvin Gaye and then the next track is Joe Henderson and the next, you know, so it's like, right, right. It's all music, man. It's all just, just music. He's such a, I mean, he's such a great player, but he's such an amazing person too. See, that's the thing. I'll tell you, that's the thing for me because one of my mentors used to tell me that character is more important than talent. And that's something that I try to live by, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, we all know people who can play all kind of crazy, amazing sure. stuff that nobody else can play. But it's not those things that touch me. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about only wanting to, to play and tour and record with the people that really mean something to me, that's what it goes back to. It's a given that the people that I play with, they're going to be great musicians. It's kind of mm -hmm. a given, fortunately, right. at this point in my career. But I want it to mean so much more than that because of what it is that you have to give, but more importantly, what it is that you're charged to do as musicians. Right. Going right. back to what R. Blakey said, man, you're supposed to wash away the dust of everyday life. It is not about me. Mm -hmm. You know, when I play, mm -hmm. it is not about me. And it's not about licks. It's not about, for me, I'm, I, uh, you know. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. So, yeah. But and yeah. not that, like you said, not that that's right or wrong, but that's, uh, I'm there too. Well, you know, and I, see, when we talk about that though, Nick, we talk about right or wrong, and I think right or wrong is relative to the individual. And right. what I mean specifically about that, I think there's a place for everybody, you know, to do whatever it is that we're doing, whatever it mm -hmm. is that we do. I think all of us have an obligation though, as musicians, is to ask this very fundamental question, which is, what are you called to do? Now, what you're called to do is very different from what it is you want to do. Right. Right? When you talk about what you're called to do, that becomes a higher spiritual thing sometimes, but it goes beyond just you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and so we talk mm -hmm. about what are you called to do, really, it's what is your gift? What are you gifted to do? What it is, you know, it, 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 it's like um, most people that, have seen me or they see me, I kind of joke around and have fun or whatever. But very few people know the real me. And the real me is that I'm, I'm really an introvert. I really just, I, I really spend a lot of time alone. I right. really love being alone. I really love just kind of chilling and having some, mm -hmm. my quiet time. But the people that I tend to naturally gravitate toward are kids, right? Mm. In my co-op building, man, all of the kids know me, right? Because I'm always joking with them, you know, right, girls right. about their shoes and the boys about, you know, their baseball games because they're just so pure. Mm -hmm. And the pretentiousness and stuff that's not there, right? It's just pure from the heart, you know? So, you know, when we talk about what are we called to do, for me, it's about through music of just sharing. And that's kind of where I'm at. I just want to share, right. mm -hmm. you know? And uh, I made the analogy with the kids just because. You know, those are things that, uh, the, the things that I'm called to do, I feel natural at, it's like it just comes natural. Of course. Whether it's relating to kids or playing, but, you know, other things. And, you know, you get to a point in your growth and development as a musician, you have to ask yourself that honest question is, are you being honest when you play? And only you know that, mm -hmm. you know. 
And, uh, and again, that's not a judgment thing, but that's something that we all have to ask ourselves when we play. Are we being honest? You know, mm-hmm. are you playing from a pure place or are you trying to impress somebody? Or, right. You know, in jazz, sometimes we talk about the jazz police. You know, it's like, are you concerned <laughs> about the jazz police? I can care less about the jazz police. Sure. I, I've never, ever seen somebody come to my house and say, who is it? Jazz police, we got a check for you to pay your mortgage. Right. And haven't yet. So until that does happen. Yeah, until that does happen, please. You know. Right. (laughs) But uh, yeah, but those those are some of the things I'm working on musically. And then, of course, like I said, a lot of educational things and, you know, working. I have some different ideas in terms of product, product development. You know, I've been kind of in the laboratory a little bit with Zildjian working on some different sounds and. Some other things, you know, you know, along those lines that I'm kind of hearing and kind of working on as well. Awesome. And I appreciate you mentioned how selective you're being with what you do and your time and things like that. So I appreciate the fact that you would, you know, take over an hour of your time to sit here and chat with me and, and share your knowledge with the with the listeners of the podcast, man. I really do. Appreciate man, I, I appreciate you thinking of me to have me. Absolutely. All those wonderful other musicians and drummers that you have there. I appreciate yeah, you and I appreciate it, what you do. Well, thank you, man. the 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 sentiment is mutual, man. I I do. This is an awesome conversation. I'm gonna. I gotta come out and see you because you're in the city. So I'll just. I gotta come see you. Yeah. Uh, playing somewhere. Absolutely. So so and if anyone wants to learn more about you, they can go to carlallen.com. And yes. again, thank you for for your time. Thank you for your contribution to music thank and you. Uh, for sharing all all your knowledge, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Anytime. Anytime. All right. All right. And enjoy that next big meal. Oh, I will. (laughs) (laughs) I'll talk to you soon, man. Take care now. All right, you too. Bye-bye. So there you have it, Carl Allen. And for everything that we talk about, all the notes and all the links to everything, you can check out drummersresource.com forward slash session 194. Also, be sure to vote for Drummers Resource for the best general interest website for the 2016 Drummies. You can do that at drummersresource.com forward slash vote. And if you want to grab a free audiobook at audible.com, you can get it at audible.com forward slash drummer. Sign up for a free trial, download your first free audio book. I recommend the four hour work week or Ryan Holiday's Ego is the Enemy. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. You can catch this episode and all 190 plus episodes at drummersresource.com. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.